last few weeks, uh, I've been running a little longer than uh, than is healthy for all of us. <laughs> so uh, I am going to try and be a little bit more disciplined. Uh, you all are being good about getting here on time, so I don't have that excuse to to run late. So I will try to be. Uh, Try to be a little bit more disciplined and get us out of here a few minutes earlier than we have been. So, uh, no buzzers, please. <laughs> Actually, I did think about setting the timer on my watch, but I decided not to. Uh, I've got a clock back there. I just need to be more disciplined. Uh, the problem is I'm always trying to cover uh, a lot of material, and, and there's so much to be covered, and it's hard to stop. Uh, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to try and do that a little bit better than we've been doing the last few weeks. So uh, I appreciate your patience in, in uh, putting up with me. Uh, but we are, uh, we are just starting the book of Genesis. We did our introduction last week. And we looked uh, just uh, for a while last week at verse 1 of chapter 1. And as I said at the outset, we're, uh, we're going to... Uh, come on in. <laughs> we're going to be uh, uh, we're going to be doing a thorough study. It will not be an exhaustive study. Uh, we're not going to look at every minute detail as we go through, but uh, but we will try to be fairly thorough. However, on our study here of uh, the first uh, couple, three chapters anyway, this, the study of creation, I do want to I do want to be fairly uh, fairly detailed in that. So we'll. We'll take our time. We'll get as far as we can today. I'd like to get down through verse 13 uh, through day three of creation, but we'll see if we make it that far. If we don't, we'll just uh, we'll pick up next week uh, wherever we, however far we get today. So, <clears throat> but let's read uh, beginning in verse one and read down through verse 13, and then we'll review a little bit some of the things we talked about last week, and then pick up with our lesson today. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, And let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Okay? Uh, briefly then, let's go back and think about some of the things we talked about last week. The introduction and... Uh, and some of the things we talked about, verse 1, what kind of things do you remember from our talk last week? The reason I ask questions is to give me a chance to wet my throat. See, that's why I ask questions. What did you learn about Genesis last week? Or what were you reminded about Genesis last week? Okay. Okay. We have a we have a fancy theological term for that. You remember what it is? Ex nihilo. Okay. Ex nihilo means out of nothing, and God created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, what's the implication of that? 
Okay? There was nothing. Okay? And when we say nothing, we mean nothing. Okay? We don't mean a vacuum. We mean nothing. Okay? There was no energy. There was no matter. There was no space. There was no time. You know, I, I find it hard to think of no space because when I think of nothing existing, then I think of, oh, then there's lots of space if there's nothing in the space. But there was no space. And, you know, at that, mind, at that point, my mind begins, of course, to short circuit. But, but, but that's what we mean. That quite literally, the only thing, if I can use that word, that existed before Genesis 1, verse 1, was God Himself. Okay? And uh, so there was God... And, uh, and everything else came into existence at that particular point in time. Okay? What else? Point in time being a, uh, a difficult term to use because the point in time was the beginning of time. So <laughs> Anything else you remember from last week? Okay, yeah. We talked about the fact that the actually the Hebrew word there, the, the third word of the, of the first verse there, in the beginning, that Hebrew word actually has with it not only the idea or the meaning of the beginning, but it has a connotation of an end point, okay, in the Hebrew. So that, so that when, when the, the Lord is recording for us here the very beginning of things, He has, even as He's talking about the very, very, very beginning... He has in view a consummation of all things in Himself, the end of all things in Himself. Okay? What else? Remember anything we talked about the structure of Genesis or how it was, how it's built? Uh, you may talk about that. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, okay, yeah. Uh, one of the themes that runs through Genesis, uh, as Rick points out here, is the theme of the kingdom of God. It runs all the way through Scripture, but, uh, but we find it in Genesis. And remember we talked about four elements of a kingdom. Remember what they were? Okay, yeah. There's a people, there's a land, there's rulers, there's a ruler, and there's rules. That's what generally constitutes a kingdom, okay? In the book of Genesis, the first two are, the, are what we really focus on. The idea of the land, or a land, and the idea of a people, okay? And along that line of the people is the point that Rick pointed out, is that we have, going through the book of Genesis, we have the idea of the tracing of this two, of this two lines of people, the lines of the righteous and the, lines of the, the line of the unrighteous. Okay, and so uh, as we go through Genesis, we're going to be primarily chase, uh, tracing that that line of the righteous seed all the way down through Genesis, and we'll look off at the other lines as we go through. But uh, but those two ideas of of this of the kingdom of God and the idea of this righteous line or this righteous seed that goes through Genesis that weaves its way through Genesis are two of the primary themes in the book. Anything else? Okay. Okay. We can we kind of skimmed over the book and thought about some of the stories, didn't we? Yeah. And uh talked about just how loaded the book of Genesis is with so many absolutely just terrific uh, uh powerful stories and we're going to get the chance to over the next who knows how long get a chance to think about uh think about many of those stories and and find their application in our life. Anything else before we go on? Okay, well remember one of the things that I mentioned uh, that our objective here is is to study the book. To learn what the book says, okay? To learn what to learn what God is telling us out of the book of Genesis. Okay. So, uh, particularly as we are as we are looking at these first couple chapters, we're looking at the story of creation uh, from first the perspective of the prologue in Genesis 1 through the uh, Genesis 1 1 through about 2 verse 3 uh, 
and then the uh, the perspective from the righteous, the idea of the righteous seed or the people picking up in Genesis 2:4 and that account of creation uh, from the perspective of the of the of the descendants of Adam, uh, of Adam and his descendants, beginning in 2:4 and, and down through the end of chapter 2. That as we're as we're looking at that, what I really want to discover is I want to discover what is what is what does the text say? What does the scripture say? Okay, and and so we're not going to focus uh, a lot on on how those things relate to the question, to the scientific questions that are before us. We'll talk about that a little bit, but this is not a class on apologetics. There is a place and a time for that, and and uh, and uh, you know that's certainly a worthwhile endeavor to study apologetics and to study the whole creation evolution debate. Uh, that's not primarily our purpose, so I'm not going to try to answer all those questions. If you bring up questions, we'll try to wrestle with them uh, as we go through. I'm not averse to talking about them, but that's not our primary objective. Our primary objective is to ask, what does the passage say? <laughs> and then once I understand what the passage says, I know what God says about it, uh, then science will have to figure, figure out how that, uh, how that is, uh, uh, works with its own scheme of things. But, but I just want to know... Uh, from our perspective, what does the passage teach? Okay. So last week we looked at verse 1 a little bit and we talked about three primary points in verse 1. What were those three primary points or issues that arise in verse 1? I've already mentioned a little bit of this. This is not a. Uh, this is neither a trick nor a high tech question. You have an open book in front of you here, so you should be able to, even if you weren't here last week, to tell us what are the three main points of Genesis one one. Okay. Okay. The three. The three issues are uh, the issue of the beginning that we already talked about. That this is the beginning of all things. Okay. Uh, the idea that it, this is God. This is the Elohim of Scripture. Okay, uh, this is not some provincial god. This is not some uh, god of the mountains or god of the plains, as we talked about about that story in Kings. But this is, in fact, the god of the scriptures, the god of the Bible, um, Elohim, and uh, and He is, in fact, as Scripture asserts, the Creator of all things, and all things have come into existence by Him, and all things are held together by the word of His power. Okay. And then we talked about the fact uh, fact of creation, that he created the heavens and the earth. Uh, as we will see over and over again as we look down through this first chapter, that God speaks and these things come into existence. Okay. And so we talked, about, uh, we talked about several implications of that. And one, I, we were kind of running through this very quickly at the end. And I made a statement right at the end. One of the implications of Genesis 1.1 is that creation does not emanate from God, okay? And, and, and somebody asked me about that as we, just as we were finishing. What did I mean by that? Uh, the, the point there is that what becomes clear in Genesis 1.1 and in the verses that follow is that the creation is distinct from God. It is apart from God. It is not part of God's nature, okay? So when we say, when we say that creation didn't emanate from God, we're, we're answering the... The pantheists, the idea, the people who have the idea, uh, or the philosophy that has the idea that that God and nature and all of it is just kind of one, and God is in nature and nature is in God and that sort of thing. And Genesis makes it very clear that the creation is distinct from God; it doesn't emanate out of His being, but He speaks and it comes into in, into existence. Okay, and that's a very important concept to understand. The Scripture makes it very clear that nature is not God, the trees aren't God, the, 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 the rocks and the hills, they are not God, the sun is not God, they are not to be worshipped, and they are not to be served, and that becomes clear as we go through Genesis. Okay? Well, one of the things I promised last week that we would do is we would talk a little bit about the relationship of Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2. There are a couple questions as we go forward now into, into more of the account of creation beginning in verse 2. There are a couple questions that arise that, that I want to, to wrestle with to some extent here this morning, at least to touch on them. And there's a lot more that could be said than, than what we're going to say here today. But there are two questions. And, and the first question is the question of what is the relationship of verse 2 of Genesis 1 to verse 1. Okay? 
And then the, uh, the second question that arises that, that we need to resolve is the question of what are these days that he keeps talking about? He talks about day one, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, etc. What are these days? Okay. And there are various uh, theories uh, proposed. And, uh, and I just want to make this point at the beginning that, that I know of, I know of really devout people that hold various views on this point. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to make an assertion here of what I think the scripture teaches here, what I believe the scripture teaches here, and there may be some of you in the class who view things differently and don't uh, feel like uh, by by my suggesting how the scripture ought to be interpreted here that I'm suggesting that you don't love the Lord or that you're not a Christian or you know you can't be a Christian and think one of these ways or or whatever, but I think there is a right way to interpret the passage, and that's what I'm going to set before you. And as I said, there are other there are Christians who disagree with me, and I'm sorry they're wrong, but but <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to make that uh, clear at the beginning that that it's not an attack on somebody's spirituality or somebody's uh, devotion to the Lord uh, to say that I disagree with them. Okay. But there are uh, basically three views of Genesis 1:1. As it relates to the rest of the creation story, okay, and uh, and one of those uh, one of those views of Genesis one one is uh, and Genesis one two is what we call the gap theory. Okay, uh, the second the second view is the idea that Genesis one one is a is like a heading or a summary statement of what's going to follow. Okay, so that. So that in, in, cha- in verse 1, he just kind of makes a, a general statement. And then beginning in verse 2 and follow, he fills out the meat of that. So it is basically a summary statement. And, and verses uh, 2 and the rest of, down through the rest of the chapter are a, uh, are a further detailing or explanation of what he says in Genesis 1.1. The, other, the third view, primary view of Genesis 1.1 is that it is simply the first act of creation week. Of, this, of the six days of creation, however you view the days, and we'll get to that in a minute uh, or in a few minutes. But and So those are the three possible ways, primary possible ways that I know of that Genesis 1-1 can be looked at. The gap theory, which I'll explain in a minute. Uh, the idea that it is a summary statement or a heading statement and that it is elaborated on in the following verses. And the third view is that it is simply a statement of the first act of creation uh, and then the subsequent acts are coming immediately after that. Okay. Now, by the gap theory, and it's actually called by several different names, and I'll just call it the gap theory because it's the easiest thing to say. But the gap theory suggests that there is actually a significant period of time gap between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. And when I say significant period, I'm talking billions of years. Okay? So there are some people who believe that there is a, there is a gigantic time gap between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. Okay. Uh, this uh, this uh, theory, this gap theory, not only asserts this time gap of billions of years, okay, but it also uh, typically most people or many people who hold the gap theory assert that the so that the world then was first created many billions of years ago, and that there was a subsequent despoiling of this created earth, this first the first version of the earth, if you went version 1.1 or whatever, that there was a despoiling of this earth uh, as a result of Satan's rebellion against God and there was a great cataclysmic judgment and the earth was subsequently basically destroyed and it was in this destroyed state then when we get to the beginning of verse 2. Okay? Uh, typically, accompanying this is also the idea that there were there was a pre-Adamic there were pre-Adamic non-human and human life forms on the earth uh, prior to Genesis 1-2. Okay, so so you have in the gap theory typically you have the idea that the earth was created billions and billions of years ago and that God created a whole earth system with with life forms and non-human and human life forms and and that at some point in time Satan rebelled. Uh, uh, Satan was on the earth and he was functioning on the earth and he rebelled and, and God judged the earth and destroyed everything. And so then we find it in this, in this formless and void state that we find it at the beginning of verse 2. Okay. And that's basically what the gap theory 
uh, asserts. And <clears throat> clearly one of the primary reasons for the popularity of the gap theory, and it is quite popular, one of the primary reasons is that, it, is that in the view of those who hold it, it accommodates the, uh, the modern scientific theories of the age of the earth. Okay? So it accommodates things like uniformitarian geological dating and things like that. Okay? So the idea is, well, science tells us that the earth is billions and billions of years old, and, and so maybe we need to rethink Genesis 1 and, and understand or see that there, is, that there are billions of years in here between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. And it's a way to explain uh, the scriptures uh, and, and still uh, accept uh, modern scientific dating methods. Okay? And the opinion of science that the earth is billions of years old. And it accounts to some degree for the fossil record of you know, human beings and, or, or, or apparent human forms or near human forms in, in, the, uh, in the fossil record. Uh, and, uh, and we can account for all that and then still have our re- relatively recent contemporary creation of Genesis 2 and verse 1, 2 and the verses following. Okay. Uh, it's based on uh, several, uh, exegetically they have to do some things with the passage. Interpretation-wise, they have to do some things with the passage in order to justify that view. And one of the things is we talked last week about the word there in verse 1, God created, the word created there, okay? And we talked about uh, that, that the idea of that word is he created out of nothing, the way it is used there in the passage. Uh, and we talked about the fact that that Hebrew word, which is the word bar or bara, uh, only is used in reference to God uh, in the Scriptures, okay? It's never used uh, in reference to anyone else, okay? Okay. <coughs> Those who hold the gap theory draw a very rigid distinction between the Hebrew word bara uh, and the uh, Hebrew word asa, A-S-A-H, in English, the English transliteration, which uh, is typically translated by the word made or make. Okay? So that when in your English translations, when you read the word create, typically the, the word there, the Hebrew word that they're translating is the word bara, and, the, and when you read the word make or made, uh, the Hebrew word they're translating there is the word Esa. And those who hold to the gap theory hold to a very rigid distinction between those two words. They are not interchangeable in their, in their point of view. Uh, that the word bear always re- means to create out of nothing or from nothing ex nihilo. And the word made means to take something, from, to make something out of something that already exists or, or, or is already, uh, yeah, already pre-existing material. Okay. And, uh, and so, for example, in verse uh, uh, 4 of chapter 2, it says that uh, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens, made, made uh, excuse me, uh, in the day when the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Okay? And, and so you see those two words used there uh, uh, in, in the same verse. Okay? Now, the problem with the argument there on the part of the gap theorists is that the words are used. There's not a rigid distinction between the words. And in fact, the words are used interchangeably. And that verse we just looked at there in chapter 2, verse 4, is a classic example of where the two words are used interchangeably. Where in one point he talks about God creating the heavens and the earth. And then a moment later he talks about God making the heavens and the earth. He uses the two words interchangeably. And there are a number of other places in the Old Testament. We won't go into them all. But where Bera and Asa are used interchangeably. Okay? So there are places where it says God created the heavens and the earth and other places it says God made the heavens and the earth. Okay? So there's a problem there uh, exegetically uh, on the part of those who hold to that theory. Another thing that the, that the gap theorists do is uh, in, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 1 uh, where it says the earth was formless and void the Hebrew word uh, there is the Hebrew word transliter- transliterated into English haitha or hayata, okay? And, and that word was, they argue, can sometimes be translated became, okay? So what they argue is that the verse, verse 2 should read, the earth became formless and void, 
Okay, so that comes from their idea that their worth was created and had this, you know, all this magnificent splendor and order and everything to it, and then it was judged and destroyed and became formless and void. Okay, uh, and there are a few rare occasions where the word is translated "became," but the vast majority of cases where the word is translated, given the context, and that's how you determine how a word. Part of the way you determine how a word should be translated is by its context. The vast majority of cases. The overwhelming number of cases in which the word is translated is translated as was. And all major translations translate uh, in translating Genesis 1-2 here translated as was. It is the preferred translation as opposed to the idea of became. Uh, they also do something kind of funny with the, uh, in my mind, uh, with, uh, with that phrase, the earth was formless and void. That comes from the Hebrew uh, Hebrew phrase tohu wabahu, and um, and the idea there, the particularly the word tohu there or tahu, uh, is the idea of of formless and empty. Okay, that's the that's the, the more literal translation of the word. Uh, they argue they argue there that that the word or the phrase always means something that was once in a state of repair, which is now ruined. Okay? And that's their understanding. Uh, they argue uh, that that is, in fact, how the word should be always translated or always understood. But there again, again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm just going on the basis of the Hebrew uh, experts that I do read. And they argue uh, quite emphatically that that is not the case. A number of years ago, uh, there was a gentleman... Uh, uh, from uh, skips, uh, slips my mind out of the school he was in. Anyway, he was doing his doctoral research and uh, on this very question, and so he sent a he sent a questionnaire questionnaire out to about fifteen or twenty of the leading Hebrew scholars in the nation and asked them if there was any basis to understand on the basis of the Hebrew grammar if there was any basis to see or uh, 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 any kind of a gap between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2, and particularly asked them about, their, about this idea of the translation of tohu wabuhu. And, and he got back a unanimous response from these 15 or 20 Hebrew scholars. All of them said there is no exegetical basis, there's no uh, linguistic basis, there's no grammatical basis uh, for viewing a gap there between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. Okay. The second uh, possibility of the relationship of chapter of verse one to verse two and the verses following is, as I said, is that the idea that it's a, a heading, okay, that or a summary uh, statement. Okay, uh, I have a couple problems with that. Uh, I'm not as uncomfortable with that as I am with the gap theory, but I have a couple problems with it, and. Uh, and, and uh, two or three problems. One of them is that in, just in the normal reading of the passage, if you just sit down and you just read the passage and you don't come to it with preconceptions, it just flows. It just flows. And it doesn't appear to be a heading or a summary statement. Okay. Uh, the second thing is um, in, uh, in Exodus, remember when we were in studying that uh, passage in Exodus and we were looking at God giving of the Ten Commandments. When he gives the commandment for the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, when he gives that commandment, he says specifically that in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Okay? So when God articulates in, Genesis, in Exodus in chapter 20, verse 11 and also in chapter 31, verse 17, when he articulates... Uh, the reason for the keeping of the Sabbath, he specifically states that the heavens and the earth were created as part of the six-day creation. Okay, so uh, given that understanding, uh, and given the, the the reading of the text, just the normal reading of the text, uh, it seems to me that this is not a heading. It's not a summary statement, but rather that in beginning in in verse one and, and on down through the rest of the the rest of the verses, he's just simply citing out in somewhat of a chronolo chronological order exactly how things occurred. Okay. Uh, 
There's another point there I wanted to make on that, and it slips my mind. If I remember it, I'll come back to it. But <clears throat> so, so as as I look at Genesis one one and Genesis one two and the verses that following, I see it not as a. I don't see a gap in there. I don't see some large uh, time frame uh, reference there. Uh, nor do I see it as a. Uh, uh, nor do I see it as a heading. Uh, I remember now my, the other point I was going to make about it being a heading is if it's a heading statement or a summary statement, then in reality we really have no account in Genesis or, uh, in, in, or anywhere for that matter. We have no real account of how the earth came into existence. Okay? Uh, if, it's simply a, if it's simply a heading statement or a summary statement, uh, then it's summarizing the verses that follow. So the real beginning of creation starts with verse 2. And if that is the beginning of the account of creation, God has given us no account for the actual existence of how the earth itself came into existence. We only know that at the beginning of his description, it was formless and void. So his description and his account of creation only goes back to that point at which the earth is formless and void and doesn't account for how the earth itself came into existence. Okay? So that was another reason why I, I don't see it as a summary statement. Okay? So, so as I understand the passage, it appears to me that Genesis 1.1 is just simply a clear-cut statement of the first act of creation that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beginning then in verse 2, he quickly focuses down his whole discussion to the question of the earth. Okay? And the, the whole rest of the creation story is all about the earth. Even day 4, when he talks about the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars and all that sort of thing, he's talking about it in relationship to the earth so that it will help us, help us know the days and the years and, and give light to the earth. So it all pertains to the earth. So immediately beginning in verse, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 1, the focus is on the land. The focus is on the earth. The focus is on this globe. Now, there's a lot else out there that God created and other passages in Scripture talk about, about God creating the angels and all that sort of thing. Okay. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't tell us about all that okay? because of the themes of Genesis that we were talking about last week. The idea of the theme of Genesis, one of the ideas is this kingdom of God and the idea of the land and the people. And that's what Genesis is focusing on. That is its theme. So Genesis doesn't go into elaborate discussion to us about the creation of the angels and when they created. It doesn't tell us when, uh, when uh, Satan fell. I have some opinion on that and I'll give that uh, in the appropriate time about the time frame for all of that. And, and we can talk about those things. But... But that's not the thrust of Genesis. What Genesis is getting to, what Moses is trying to, to, to help the children of Israel understand here is this whole idea of God creating a place in which man can live and move and have his being. Okay? And that's what Genesis is about. The idea that God, is, God has an, an, an ultimate objective or thing that he wants to... Uh, uh, he has an, uh, uh, an object that he wants to reach in creation, and that is the creation of mankind. That's the pinnacle of the creation. And so everything else in creation is to create a place, to create a land in which this human race that he is going to create can live and move and function and rule and create and do all of the things that he wants, he, you know, wants mankind to do. Okay? And so immediately uh, we start with this grand general statement of God created the heavens and the earth and then at that point he just focuses his, his entire, like a laser, he focuses on the whole issue of the earth and the preparation of the earth for uh, mankind. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> Now, the other uh, uh, issue or question that comes up, and this may be as far as we get today, is, is the question of these days. Okay, so you'll notice at the end of verse 5, he says, and there was morning, there was evening, and there was morning one day, at the end of verse 8, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. 
uh, the end of verse 13, uh, there was evening and there was morning a third day, and he goes on down through the other days. And at each day, he says, you know, the fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, and then ultimately, finally, in chapter 2, the seventh day. Okay? So the question comes up what are these days? And there are two primary theories about what these days are. One is that they are, in fact, 24 hour or roughly 24 hour periods of time, a day as we know it. Okay. The other uh, theory is is the idea that they are uh, what we call uh, ages. Okay. So it's the day what we call the day age theory, and the idea is that each day in Genesis one represents an age. Uh, uh, of varying lengths, not necessarily of the same length, but various length ages. Uh, but when we're talking about ages, we're talking about uh, thousands or millions of years in each day. Okay, and and again, the primary reason for the popularity of the day age theory is is the this the sense of need or feeling that some have that we somehow need to accommodate the story of Genesis to contemporary scientific opinion. Okay? And uh, so the whole issue of uniformitarian uh, dating methods comes in here, the whole issue of the, of the uh, fossil record and, and all that sort of thing all comes into, comes into play here. When I'm talking, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, I'll just explain what I mean. When I'm talking about uniformitarian dating methods, we date... We date the earth. Scientifically, we date the earth. We date the rocks and, and the soils and all that sort of thing. We date them by a certain, based upon a certain philosophy. Okay? We like to think it's all scientific, but it's not all scientific. It starts with a basic philosophy. And that philosophy is that, that things as they are now is the way they have always been. Okay? So that at the, the, certain, the rate at which things are occurring now, then we can measure and we can say certain things decay at this rate or certain things happen at this rate, okay? That it is uniform and has always been uniform. It has never changed. So things have always, always gone on at the rate we know that they're going on today, okay? That's, that's a philosophy. We have no scientific evidence for that. We can't prove that, okay? That's a philosophical basis for modern dating methods, okay? And so when I object to uniform, uh, uniformitarian dating methods, I, I do so because, because as I understand the book of Genesis, things haven't always been the way they are now. There was a point in time in which something dramatically different happened that is unlike anything that we see today. Okay? And, and so, uh, so while I can accept that modern science, using its its contemporary dating methods can look at a rock and say this rock is, you know, five billion years old or whatever. And I can accept that that their methods say that I object to the philosophical basis of their method and they have no scientific evidence for their philosophical basis It's simply a statement of faith that they make by which they assert that. OK, well. Uh, I just I wanted to clarify what I meant there because I keep throwing that term out. So I wanted you to know what I meant by that. <clears throat> the argument then is that these days are really these long ages or periods of time. And it is true that in the Bible, the word day can mean something other than a 24-hour period of time. For example, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the verse we've already read. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. And then he goes on and he gives an account of the, the second account of creation. Okay, clearly took place over more than one 24-hour period. So it's clear, beginning right there in Genesis chapter two, that sometimes the word day is used to refer to a period of time longer than a 24-hour period of time. Okay. For example, another example would be the term the day of the Lord. Okay? The day of the Lord is clearly a reference to a period of time. Okay? And actually, as the term is used, it can apply to several different things. But, but oftentimes, the day of the Lord applies to everything, the kind of beginning from the rapture and all the way through the, through the millennium and the, and the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. So it can, uh, it can actually account for a period of significant amount of time. 
Okay. So we have to look in the context of the passage to understand how is the word day being used. I should make this point, however, that although the word day is sometimes used for a fairly lengthy period of time, it is never used to represent the kinds of epics or ages or millions or multiple thousands of years that that one has to understand it to represent in Genesis 1. Uh, if, if, if those are in fact ages there in Genesis 1. So, so even though it can represent uh, substantial lengthy periods of time, never in Scripture is it ever used outside of Genesis 1, if, it is, if in Genesis 1 is used that way, never in any other place in Scripture it is ever used to represent these humongous, multiple hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands or, or millions, of peri- uh, millions of years. Okay? Uh, Another thing about the word day, which is significant, is that no place in the scripture is the word day used with a a modifying number, one day, two days, three days. Never is it used to refer to anything other than a 24-hour period when it is used in conjunction with a number as it is in Genesis chapter 1. So if in Genesis chapter 1 it's referring to ages, or something other than a 24-hour period. It is the only place in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word there, day yom, is, uh, is used in conjunction with a number to mean something other than a 24-hour day. Okay? But to me, the most conclusive thing is that God goes out of His way to tell us what He means by day. In the text, <laughs> He says, morning and evening, okay? Now, if it was me, I would say, or he says uh, evening and morning. If it was me, I would say, as I just uh, mistakenly said, morning and evening, because that's the way we in the Western world think. But in the Hebrew mind, they put the evening before the morning, okay? And so, in the context of the passage, God defines the word day. He defines a day as a morning, as, as consisting of, a mor- of an evening and a morning. Okay, and and so what he's saying there is we have a period of light and a period of uh, excuse me, we have a period of darkness and a period of light, and at the end of that period of light is the end of that day and it commences the next day. That's why uh, that's why, for example, uh, you know, with the Jews, Passover doesn't begin in the morning; it begins on the evening. That's why Sabbath does not begin in the morning; it begins at sundown because. To the Jew, the Sabbath day begins at sundown and continues till sundown the next day. Evening and morning. Darkness and then light. That's how they view today. Okay? And so God speaks very clearly and tells us exactly what he means here by a day when he says it's the evening and the morning. Now, there are some other problems with the whole day-age theory, and I'm only mentioning a few. But, but one of the problems... Is, is a significant botanical problem. Okay? We notice that on day three, God created what? Okay, what kind of life, specifically? Plants, vegetation, okay? <laughs> Our whole field of botany, okay? So, we have the creation of plant life, okay? But, but according to the day-age theory, we have these humongous long periods of thousands or millions of years, okay? But Genesis tells us that each one of those days is marked by two things. What? Excuse me? Morning and evening. So, so essentially or presumptively, you have roughly half or, you know, third, two-thirds or half and half or whatever, darkness and light, okay? So if, in fact, you have these humongous long ages and on the th- in the third age plant life is created but after it's created you have a, a period of multiple thousands or even millions of years of darkness what happens to the plants after about 48 hours okay they start dying okay so there's no way the vegetation could have survived without this cycle of life of day and night. Okay. Well, arrogance, you know, such arrogance that we cannot believe that God is able to formulate these theories. There's no way that God could do it so quickly. So, such 
arrogant and thinking it's got to fit into our mindset. Yeah. 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 I, I certainly agree with that. And and like I say, there are Christians who hold to each of these theories, the, the gap theory and the day age theory. Um, and I respectfully, vigorously disagree with them. Uh, but I don't use that as a basis to call into question their uh, their devotion to God. Okay, that rests on other issues. Okay, but it is, I think, an important issue. Well, those are a couple problems I wanted to wrestle with, and we're close. We're 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 running close to the end here, so we'll we'll see how far we get. <clears throat> Given all that preliminary stuff and preliminary information, then clearly what I the way I view the passage here is that Genesis 1.1 is the first act of the six-day creation and that the six-day creation was, in fact, six uh, essentially 24-hour day event or, or time periods. Okay, So we have, <clears throat> we have six days and then we have uh, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. Okay? Uh, incidentally, that's another argument against the day-age theory, day theory is that if, in fact, the days are ages, then we have God resting for many millions of years after uh, the creation. And we have, according to Genesis 2, the creation ceases at the end of the sixth age. Okay. Well, of course, obviously an evolutionist believes that this creation process is still going on. Okay. But Scripture is quite clear that creation ceases after the sixth day. Okay. Well, <clears throat> let's get off, off all that and get into the story. Okay. Picking up then in verse 2, we're actually picking up in the middle of the story of the first day. Okay, And God has created the heavens and, and He's created the earth. And then He describes the earth to us as what? What is it like? Okay, It's formless and void. It's dark. Okay, It's just... Uh, it's just Really, a very nice, very not uh, hospitable place. And when we read this description of the earth in Genesis 1-2, before we get to the last phrase of the verse, in those first two phrases of the verse, those first two clauses, whatever, of the verse, as we read those, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine the spectacular, splendid, glorious thing that we're going to have six days later, right? I mean, it's just, if, you, if you want to kind of get a picture of what the earth was like, and, and I'm not sure there's a direct parallel here, but as I was thinking about it, this is kind of a way it helps me imagine what the earth was like at this point in the creation event. Was think about Saturn or Jupiter, okay? What do we know about Saturn and Jupiter? Okay, that is huge giants which we think have a core of, of rock or something earth-like in the middle of them. But basically on the outside, they're just gases and fluids. And, and I was reading on the NASA website this morning, uh, they think even some water may be floating around on there on them. Okay? So you have this, this core, but on the outside is this fluid, gaseous, you know, whatever, flowing around on the planet before you even get out into the atmosphere. Okay? And... And that kind of helps me picture what the earth may have been like in this description that he gives in chapter 1, verse 2. Is, is the earth we have, uh, you know, he doesn't tell us much about it other than that it, it really didn't have any real form to it. It, it, was, it was void. It was empty. When he says it was empty, it doesn't mean it didn't have anything in it. It doesn't mean it was a vacuum. He means simply there was nothing like we think of the earth having. Plants and animals and, and all that sort of thing. It was just this this formless, fluid void, okay? And it was dark. I don't know if I remember reading this or just thought of it, but that chaos is another kind That's a word that I, actually in my notes, I was using the word chaos. Um, but we have to steer a little bit, we have to be careful with that word chaos because sometimes the word chaos can imply evil, okay? So I kind of like the word chaos, uh, but as I was going through my notes this morning, I deleted it <laughs> because because we do have to be careful with the word. But I kind of like it. It's 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 chaotic in the sense that it really has no form or anything. It's just but it's not chaotic in the sense that it's some kind of evil disorder. OK, so I, I do like that word. OK, uh, so at any rate, 
this is the description of the earth as it is. But then you get this right there at the end of verse 2. You get this last statement. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And what, what I love about that statement, even apart from the fact that it's the Spirit of God doing this, okay, is the word moving there could actually be translated brooding. That the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the waters. And it's the same word that you use when you talk about a mother bird brooding over its nest. Okay? And you get this picture of the of a of a bird sitting a mother bird sitting on the nest and she's got the eggs under there and they really aren't what they're gonna be, but she's there and she's taking care of them and she's she's giving them attention and she's getting them to a point at which they can then spring forth into the life that she is longing for and desiring. Okay. And that's the idea we get of the Spirit of God. That that He has created the earth and and, 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 and in verse one, and basically he's just kind of created the raw materials, if you will. He has brought into existence out of nothing the raw materials from which he will then construct and bring into order this magnificent creation that we see by the end of day six. Okay? And so if there in, in day one, in the middle of day one, he's he's brooding over, he's moving over the face of the waters, and it's like the Spirit of God is giving attention to this to this formless void. He's giving attention to it so as to infuse it with whatever it needs to become the things that he is going to call it to be. That he is by his by his spoken word going to call into existence. So the Spirit of God is moving over the face of the waters. And then God speaks. And literally it says, Light be, and light was. That's simple. (laughs) Light be, and light was. God, the Spirit of God, moving over the face of the waters, and then He just says, light. Poof. And there is light. Okay. Now, light's a pretty hard thing for us to comprehend. Okay. And whenever we think of light, typically we think of a source, right? And it's very hard for us to think of light without some kind of real clearly identifiable source. Okay. And Commentators view this whole thing differently because you remember that the sun and the moon, the stars, etc., aren't created, uh, or at least they don't appear to be created until day four. Okay, so you got to deal with this. Okay, and I'm not going to deal with it much here because we'll deal with it more when we get to to the fourth day. Okay, but but as I understand it, light somehow, which is a is a is a, a, a portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, so on, in the electromagnetic spectrum, you have everything from radio waves to ultraviolet light and all these other you know things. Okay, and visible light is is one portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, and and I'm assuming here that he's not talking about the entire electromagnetic spectrum, but he may be. Okay, the reason I'm assuming that is because the readers of Genesis <laughs> had really no clue of anything beyond visible light. They didn't understand the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, So I'm assuming that when Moses is writing here about light, he's writing about visible light. But in reality, if God created visible light at this point, I'm assuming he created the whole electromagnetic spectrum at this point, of which only the light, light was the only visible part. Okay, So he calls into existence this whole spectrum. Okay. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I'm near a scientist, okay? so I can't explain all that. And I don't, expo- I don't understand exactly how you have light without the sun up there shining down here giving us light. But it appears that that's what he's telling us happened. Okay? That we just have light exists. That God calls into existence the electromagnetic spectrum, of which 
if if we had been a little whatever that didn't exist yet, you know, a little mice watching, but mice didn't exist yet. I won't go there. Uh, uh, you know, we would have we would have only of the whole spectrum we would have only seen the visible light. Okay, but this comes into existence. Rick, were you going to say something? Uh, well, that's a thought too. Yeah, and and I actually think that there's some way in which this light is an emanation of His glory. I don't know how all that works. You know, I don't. You know, I don't pretend to understand all this. So. Revelation is kind of similar because the new heaven and new earth says there's no more sun or moon, but yeah. the light is Himself. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that, but you're, yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Well. <clears throat> So he creates the light and then he divides the light from the darkness. So apparently when he first created the light, it was intermingled with the darkness. We can't do that anymore. You, know, you can't do it. Anytime you have light, it dispels the darkness. You know? so, uh, so you can't intermingle light and darkness. So at some point, God separated them. Okay. Well, we only have a few minutes left and so I'm not going to even go on to day two and day three. But I do want to draw a couple observations just to give us some practical understanding of what difference does all this make to us. Okay. And there are several things, several lessons that become readily apparent to me. After God created the, the heavens and the earth and then He created the light and He divided the light from the darkness, then it says there, and it says this repeatedly throughout the chapter, it says that God saw that it was good. Now, what that means is that God, uh, he's not talking about moral goodness there, but he's talking about the quality of the thing he created. That Remember that God is trying to, shouldn't use the word trying, but God is, God is moving from, from point A where there is nothing to where he has mankind, humankind. That's the pinnacle. And he needs a place for humankind to live. Okay, So he's creating a place for humankind to live. So at every stage along the way where he creates something significant in that process of making a place or making a suitable environment for mankind, he stops and he goes, that's good. What he means by that is that this is going to work. <laughs> this is... This is going to be beneficial for mankind. This is one of the things that mankind needs and now we've got it. Okay? That's one of the things I believe that he's saying there when he says this is good. He's saying this is beneficial for man. I think he's also saying this is really what I had in mind. Now for those of you who are creators and you all are in one level or another whether you're good at creating spreadsheets or or delicious desserts, or, or kitchen cabinets, or whatever it is you're good at creating, uh, you have something in your mind. You have an idea in your mind of what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, speaking as somebody who creates things with his hands a lot, like like cabinets and painted walls and things like that, okay? And when when I'm doing that, there are times when I create something and it just... Isn't quite right, <laughs> you know. And sometimes I go, oh, "I'll just have to do." <laughs> and sometimes I go, "I'm going to do this over." But there are other times when I make something and I go, "That is so cool. That's really good." And you know, you know, when you create, pardon? Yeah, that's good. You know. And you notice that when you're creating something, you don't just do that at the end, but you do it along the way as you're, if it's something fairly complex you're making. Each step of the way, you stop and you step back and you go, oh, that's good. You know, it's getting me where I want to go. It's part of what I'm creating and this part of what I'm creating is good. And you notice that God does that because God values the process as well as the end. You notice that in that he takes six days. He could have done it all with a word. He could have just poof and it would have all existed instantly. But he didn't do that. 
But he takes time in our frame of reference. He takes time. He takes six days. And he does something, and then he stops, to use, to use an anthropomorphism. He stops, he backs off, he folds his arms, and he stops, and he goes, that's good. Now, do you think that if God did that at creation, that maybe that's what He's doing in your life? You know, He could have made you like Christ overnight. You know, that's His goal. <laughs> Destined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's His goal. That's his... But He doesn't do that. Because there's something about God that He values the process. And He not only values the process, but He values each step in the process, even though it's not the complete thing that He's after. You see that? All the way through the creation, He stops and goes, Oh, that's good. <laughs> and then He stops and goes, Oh, that's good. <laughs> and He does that at each step in the way. And I think that that tells us something about the way God is. And I think it tells us something about the way God is in our lives. That, he, yeah, He could have take, taken me and made me, you know, the end product right away. But He didn't do that. And He could have done the same with you, but He didn't do that. But He's taking time because there's something about God that enjoys the process. And if God enjoys the process, maybe we ought to stop and enjoy it too. And if God enjoys and takes pleasure in each step, each little transformation He makes in your life, then maybe you ought to too. We get so focused on the end and so frustrated that we're not at the end that I think we fail to do the very thing that we see God doing here in Creation Week. Is He does something and then He stops. And He doesn't do anything until the next day. But he looks at it and he goes, that's good. And he takes time to enjoy it. Well, there's a lot of other lessons here and we'll pull more out next week as we go on. So we'll just pick up a day two and go on.